Hello, hello, good evening, and welcome to episode 34, 5, can't remember, of Coffee with Kush. Today we're talking about personal branding. Uh, as always, this podcast will be recorded live on Twitter Spaces and then be available in a few hours uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, I'm here, I'm Aziz, I'm with Wahaj, co-host. Hello, Wahaj, how are you? Hello, Aziz, how are you? I'm great and looking forward to this one and... Um... Thank you so much, uh, everyone who's joining. As always, Ridwan, thank you for being part of the hi. Um, thank you for being part of the podcast. And as always, we are going to start with this week's digital marketing news. So let's start off. The first one is LinkedIn integrated integrates AI. Tell us, if you... have you seen this? Have you seen um, like when you start a post now on LinkedIn? Amar, I bet Dr. Amar has seen this because he uses LinkedIn a lot. It's, it prompts you to write your post with AI rather than uh, just writing your post yourself. And it looks like it's using a version of ChatGPT, but ChatGPT three maybe, not um, not one of the not ChatGPT four or, or even three point five. So uh, it, it's kind of sucky. It's kind of poor uh, as an experience. I, I tried it a few times. But I think that's a, I think that's like a, that's a big move for 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 a, a social media platform to deliberately promote creating AI content rather than organic content. It makes you wonder like, where does that end? Is it is this kind of like a, a new paradigm shift for social media platforms? We're not going to bother creating UGC user generated content anymore. We're going to be creating, you know, RGC robot generated content. How how does this end? Have you used it yet, Watch. I haven't used it because I like ChatGPT four a lot. I haven't uh, seen the the this feature. But when you, when you said that, the question is, um, is it does that mean that uh, for LinkedIn specifically, because LinkedIn is a bit different, it's more difficult to write for LinkedIn than it is, for instance, for Facebook or for Instagram for other platforms. Um, and when you said that, like I start the prompt and then it. Uh, the AI uh, can finish uh, my post for me on LinkedIn. That kind of got me thinking about where is the like the creativity, the originality, the creators uh, on LinkedIn, and all of that kind of put to the side. And now all of the content can be just one hundred percent AI generated. Um, it kind of it kind of makes you question even the LinkedIn itself for users, but. Isn't that important for LinkedIn itself? Because LinkedIn is different. It's really hard to write for LinkedIn. And this kind of falls into our topic today. It's hard for people to write on LinkedIn, and this might encourage them to do that more. What do you think? Maybe. I think that it really depends on whether what AI they use in the background, right? Because LinkedIn content, like you said, is really specific. And even like even the tempo of LinkedIn content is different. If you want a post to go viral, you'll write in almost haiku style poetry in order to um, get the algorithm to work for you. So it depends. Is it learning from that or is it just a, is it just another large language model? To be fair, integrating AI into social media tools isn't new. You know, we use Planable and Planable's had AI copywriting integrated basically since ChatGPT launched and uh, I believe Hootsuite has it available too. And so it's not necessarily new, but yeah, like I'm, I'm not sure if I was a content creator, if I was like an influencer and I, I, I was, I cared, I would, I'd be concerned about this. I'd be like, hold on, this, 
this makes it how do you stand out if you're just going to be if everyone's going to have the same AI, ai creating the same content how do you stand out anyway let's see how it evolves yeah i'm looking forward to that and you just got me scared over there when you said if the ai is actually learning from the algorithms and if it's writing based on that that means that it's going to be competing with itself throughout the platform everyone is using the same ai okay well <laughs> that's that, really <laughs> let me jump in there i know you hate when i cross over you but that is basically the challenge of ai isn't it so like AIs, when they start to work with other AIs, create better AIs, which start to work with other AIs that create better AIs. And if you speak to anyone in the space who's like a, a doomsday scenarioist or a conspiracy theorist, they'll tell you that that arrives at a point called the singularity. And that singularity is essentially where the AI knows everything and it's able to create better and better AIs to the point where it knows everything about everything. So, um, you know, who knows, maybe LinkedIn will become the fastest route to the singularity. Anyway, what's what else is new in the world this uh, this week? Okay, um, yeah, I'm gonna try to pretend that I didn't hear what you just said. <laughs> um, so Twitter to become the future of everything app. So Twitter, and I refuse to call it X because it's still Twitter to me. Um, so Twitter, <laughs> Twitter uh, aims to be basically the WeChat of the world. Um, integrating payments and everything else. But now it's embroiled in this incredible lawsuit from the Anti-Defamation League, um, which is really ironic, really, because the Anti-Defamation League um, was originally set up to sort of combat uh, anti-Semitism, but it was also like the original bastion of free speech. So in America, they've got this great thing called the, is it the First Amendment or the Second Amendment, one of the amendments, which allows basically free speech as long as it doesn't um, impinge on other people's rights. And... What I found interesting that it was the AD, uh, in that the ADL is bringing a lawsuit um, uh, against X is because in the seventies um, the ADL actually brought a lawsuit to the high court to the high court because not in England sorry to the Supreme Court which arguing um, for allowing Nazis to protest for allowing Nazis to protest. So in the in the States, they had, you know, in different parts of the States, particularly in the South, they had Nazis who were protesting. And of course, Nazis are, you know, we all know that their history um, and their views on um, Judaism, Jewish people and anti-Semitism. Uh, and um, the ADL's argument when they brought that, uh, that suit to the Supreme Court is that you can't prevent the Nazis from, from um, demonstrating because that's... Uh, uh, that's an impeachment on their their First Amendment rights. It's an impeachment on on free speech, and it was the ADL who brought that. It wasn't as though um, it wasn't as though other people were bringing it. Or the Nazis themselves were bringing it. I find it really interesting that um, that this lawsuit even exists. It feels a little bit like one of those things which is designed to keep Elon Musk busy with something else rather than trying to dominate the universe. So um, who knows? Maybe it's not such a bad thing after all. Nonetheless. Twitter remains the bastion of free speech, and I'm happy with that for now. What else is going on in the world? <laughs> you you're just attached to the little bird on the on Twitter. You can't you can't live without it. Um, so yeah, the last one, which was expected, and you and I have spoken about this before. Threads users plummet. Yeah, this was the most predictable thing in the universe. Uh, so Threads, which launched. At six weeks ago, um, which is Facebook's answer to Twitter, uh, 
rose to meteoric fame with 100 million uh, installs and, and engaged users in the first uh, seven days. And now usage has plummeted to 10 million uh, active users a day. And there's absolutely no surprise there because it's not an app. It doesn't do anything. There's no, there's nothing unique. It's not Twitter. It's not Instagram. It's not Facebook. It's not anything new. It's just a rehash of all of those things. It feels like it's going to become the next uh, Truth Social, which was uh, Donald Trump's brainchild, which is basically an echo chamber for you know right wing people to have their right wing views and and uh, live in that echo chamber. And it feels like Threads is actually the antithesis of that, which is going to be the left wing echo chamber for those people to sit and have their views on that. Nonetheless, um, as expected, Threads is uh, declining massively in usage, and unless they do something new, it will continue to decline. I can't see this becoming part of an important um, brand portfolio for any for any company or any individual in the long term. Again, unless, um, unless Mr. Zuck has got something magical up his sleeve that we're not aware of, uh, Threads will continue to die away. Probably go the same way as Google Plus, if anyone remembers Google Plus. And we were expecting something to happen within the past couple of weeks, but we kept waiting and waiting until nothing happened. Then everyone kind of forgot about it. Even us kind of forgot about it. Um, so that concludes our news of the week, uh, digital marketing news. And we can start our topic of the day, which is really exciting because I have a, a, like a story maybe that you don't know about as you, before we started. Um, so when I first came to Kush Digital, um, I looked up the company's website. It was Sudan Digital at the time. And uh, I read about the company and like how it, how it was created and everything about it. And I came across Kush uh, Coffee with uh, uh, Sudan Digital. Um, but then um, the only thing that stood out that I was kind of blown away by and interested and actually inspired by was when I read about the founder of Kush someone named Aziz Musa, I don't know if you've heard of him. And he was the youngest CEO in the UK. And that that, that piece of information kind of stuck in my mind uh, just before I came into the uh, into the interview. And um, it it the information about you as the founder stood out more than the information about the company as a company, which kind of it's my segue for today's topic about personal branding because uh, it showed me how powerful it is to have your own story as a founder of a business as opposed to the business itself. So since this is what we're talking about, I want you to tell us a little bit about that background, the thing that I just told you about the story and uh, what is personal branding? Sure. So I was, like you said, I was the youngest um, CEO of a publicly listed company in the UK. And um, I reluctantly had to undergo personal branding, right? Because I said reluctantly, because I didn't really care about it at all at that time. It wasn't on my radar. I cared more about just doing work. And one of the things that I love most is, you know, affecting change in businesses. So when I was in the in the UK or in the States, that, that's all I ever did is I, I, I worked with companies and with investors who had businesses and they had the businesses had more potential than uh, they were expressing and and my job and the thing I love to do and I still love to do is to go in there analyze it understand it fix it motivate it and drive growth basically get to get to that hockey stick 
curved point. Um, now in the UK, if you're going to be a PLC CEO, you better be over 50, have gray hair. Um, ideally, you'll come from Oxford or Cambridge and Eton, um, and you'll be well-connected. Uh, and as an aside, you're very, very likely to be white and Church of England. So, uh, you know, 32, 33-year-old Muslim from Sudan doesn't quite fit the bill. So, you know, all public companies in the UK have to have basically a PR firm working for them, a financial PR firm. And their first job was to sit me down and to say, you are not uh, a typical PLC CEO. We need to brand basically why you're right for this. Otherwise, investors are going to walk away. And so, you know, that sort of got me interested in this whole concept. I'd never actually, up until that point, I'd never considered how people outside of my organization or maybe the next layer of that customer's supplier, whatever, I'd never considered how they viewed me and it never really concerned me. Now, all of a sudden, I, I was, you know, put in a space where I was very public. Uh, anyone could invest. You know, my salary was available for everyone to see. So I really had to justify that. And I, I didn't really like it, if I'm honest, having to justify my my existence. But then I understood why it ha had to happen. And, and they had to position me as someone who was, you know, a tech background growth specialist, uh, which is exactly what that company, uh, Blackbird PLC, needed at that time. They needed a growth specialist. Um, and they had to play on my background at other companies like lastminute.com and Photobox and Moonpig and all of these companies. And that, you know, I did so many interviews on TV, radio and things like that. And there were just bullet points that they kept pushing through. So, um, you know, that was, that was really beneficial for me. And then that was, what was that? 2013 or 14. And then I think, um, what has evolved since then is that wherever you are, whatever job you're looking to do after your CV, the first thing that people will look at is your online profile, your digital footprint. And therefore, it's become critical for your digital footprint to reflect what you want it to reflect. Okay. So that really is essentially what personal branding is. It is ensuring that you are perceived in a way that you want to be perceived. It is not about ensuring that everyone knows every detail of your life. That's just not what it is, you know? No, None of my investors cared that I like, that I support Liverpool Football Club. That's not a thing that they care about. Um, but they did care uh, about my um, experience in growing companies. They did care about the things that I'd done with other companies um, as an investor or as a mentor. So those, you know, it's really about being selective about what you want to show and then showing those things. The biggest challenge, of course, is making sure that those things are real. And um, and we see it a lot. We see it in politics where people brand themselves one thing and then they're actually almost the entire opposite. So personal branding is mandatory in the business world now. It's not even optional. It's a mandatory thing. You really have to um, take the time to craft your personal brand and uh, particularly in a professional space and to deliver that. And we've got a couple of people um, in the in the room right now. Whether they are doing it deliberately or otherwise is not necessarily relevant, but um, Rodwan and, and uh, Ammar are, um, are exceptional personal branders. I don't think that they're deliberately sitting there thinking, oh, I need to brand myself this way. But because they enjoy talking about the things that they talk about, there's a very clear sense. If you'd never met Rodwan or Ammar, then there's a very clear sense of who they are as people um, without actually ever meeting them. So 
think that they're two great examples of of how personal branding can be effective. But why should specifically startups and founders? Why should they? You said it's mandatory. Why? Why is it mandatory? Why is it important? And uh, why can? Why is it? not possible for founders and startups to have successful business without focusing on personal branding as much as they're focusing on their business and presenting their business? Well, it is possible. It is possible to be successful as a startup without personal branding, but it's significantly more difficult. So firstly, why is it mandatory just for, for everyone in my view? It's, it's because of, of what I said before. Wherever, whatever job you're applying for, if you're pro- applying for a professional role anywhere in the world, the second thing that people look at after your CV, hiring managers will look at, is your digital footprint. And you want to be perceived in the best possible light in your digital footprint. And and it's happened a lot where, you know, even even me when I was in the UK, you know, I'd, I'd see a candidate, I'd see their CV, we'd go and do their digital footprint uh, analysis and it would all be, you know, Instagram posts of them being drunk at the weekend. It's like, well, I'm not 100% sure this person reflects um, what, our, what our company ethos is. So there is just... Uh, just a, a sanity element of that. In terms of startups in particular, when you build, whenever you're, uh, particularly in the B2E space, whenever you're engaging with a new company that doesn't have a track record, you're looking for what what is the effective like replacement for that track record. So like, let me give you an example. So um, my eldest daughter uh, started school this week, but she's doing... Um, She's doing distance learning or rather homeschooling with like an online school based in the UK. And we had three choices. One, um, which had been around for more than 70 years. So it was, you know, print based. Uh, and they had like Nelson Mandela as one of their um, one of their uh, alumni. Another one that had been around for like 20 years, but didn't do like a full suite of IGCSE. Uh, courses and another one which had been around for less than two years um, but had exceptional teachers that were really well uh, thought after really well respected and did a whole bunch of courses that that my eldest daughter was particularly interested in so that last one was the obvious one from a product perspective okay so if I want the, the most appropriate product the last one's the best one but then this is school right so you really need to be able to trust that this institution is going to um, effectively uh, manage your child's education, but they don't have a track record of doing that. So what's the next best thing? The next best thing is to research the actual teachers, the headmaster or the headmistress in this case, the um, the financial background of the company, the financial background of the owners. And in doing that, through going that sort of, through that due diligence process, what I uncovered was that everyone who's engaged in that business has been actually engaged in um, homeschooling in some way or another for 30 years. They've been doing it in various guises for 30 years. And that, by them doing their own personal branding, me as a customer, I felt significantly more comfortable parting with, you know, what's essentially a lot of money um, to to educate my daughter. And I felt confident that my daughter was in good hands. So they're essentially a startup. And if they hadn't had those those sort of personal profiles that built trust for me, um, I don't think I'd have used, I don't think I'd have gone with that particular provider. So basically what you did is that you invested in the people more than you invested in the institution itself. Um, and 
it seems like that's what investors do with startups. They, if they meet uh, tons of people and they come across many ideas, they probably invest within, they invest in the person behind the idea more than they invest in the idea. Would you agree uh, on that, considering what you've just explained about your dog school? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that they, they invest more in the people than the idea, but let me put it this way. You can have a great idea, but a bad management team and you won't get investment. But you can have an okay idea and a great management team with a great profile and you'll get investment because if you've got a background which you've proven through your like many years of, of, of work, if you have a background of being able to pivot and find the right answers to the challenges that you're trying to address in any given market, then um, you're, you're investable. You're an investable character. So, yeah, in that case, from, a, from, a, from an investment perspective, personal branding is really important, uh, really overlooked as well, unfortunately. In a lot of startup spaces, it's really overlooked. And it this is this is where things become difficult right because one person's view is another person's issue right so we could have i could have uh diametrically opposite um views on politics to let's say radwan um and if radwan was looking to hire me my skills are not reflected uh by my political viewpoints uh, but he may be biased by my political viewpoints when hiring me. So uh, the same is true for investment, you know. So although less so in investment because, you know, religion and politics don't tend to fit, figure much in, in people's investment decisions. So, it, it you know, it's a double-edged sword. You want to be open and honest. And, and that's why I have different personas. There are different Azizes in, in various platforms. If you see me on LinkedIn, you know, I only ever really talk about uh, business, team building, you know, escaping uh, war, digital marketing, things like that. Um, and on Twitter, I only ever talk about uh, Sudanese politics, UK politics, football and boxing. And so I tend to segment what um, the different parts of myself that I want to show on each platform. And I think that's an effective, an effective approach. It's good that you started talking about presenting yourself uh, in different ways on different platforms, because I was going to ask you about um, uh, since uh, personal branding is right now at this, uh, you know, at this day and age is mainly digital work. Um, how would I start going about presenting myself as, uh, as a, as a person and which aspect of myself to choose? Um, which platforms should I start adopting and what questions should I ask myself to know who I am? What, who do I, how do I want to show myself? Um, whether it is uh, from the you know professional business perspective or as a person, um, and so let's dive in, into the digital aspects of the personal branding, how to go about it, and mentally how to process, um, you know, uh, diving into it. Uh, what questions should I ask myself? Um, how to navigate through that? You know, I think you you got my my question. Yeah. So like the model that that I use and teach is um, Simon Sinek's model, which is start with why, right? So if you think of anything, yourself, a business, a market, there are three elements to it. There's the why of it, there's the how of it, and there's the what of it. And most people, what they do, uh, whether they're talking about their startup or they're talking about themselves, is they start with the what. You know, what is it that they are good at? I am good at social media marketing. I am uh, an expert in um, uh, reducing cost of acquisition, whatever it particularly is. 
they start with the what, the end result. And, and whilst that has some value, it's nowhere near as valuable as how. So how says, you know, um, I use tools X, B, you know, X, Y, and Z, which I'm proficient in the certified in to be able to reduce um, cost of acquisition. Or I, uh, I use my 20 years of experience to build companies in, um, in difficult uh, market environments. That's the how. So you've got like then the how and the what. But the most valuable of all is the why. You know, why do you do those things? And that is the most difficult for most people to understand. Most people never sit down and say, wait, why do I do what I'm doing? Mostly they feel like they've just sort of fallen into it. But life is filled with choices. And it's very rare that someone just falls into a path. There is always a why. There is always a why do you do those things? So why did I build Sudan Digital? I built Sudan Digital to have my small little impact on Sudan uh, in a country that I love. Uh, with people that I love, but in a way that didn't get me involved in uh, in politics in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, and uh, how did I do that? I created a vehicle called Sudan Digital, which was a digital marketing agency. It wasn't a non-for-profit. It wasn't even a social enterprise, but we ran it like a social enterprise. And and what did we do? We did SEO, digital marketing, uh, paid ads, et cetera, et cetera. And through that process, by focusing relentlessly on why, then what we ended up doing was building, you know, one of the biggest digital marketing um, agencies in East Africa uh, and in the Middle East, actually, you know, got up to like 60 people at, at, at one point. And so um, at no point did we ever, I mean, you were there for a lot of it. So at no point did we ever sit down and say, look, here, here are the financial projections, and here are the targets and here are the numbers. We didn't ever do that. We always spoke about why. We spoke about like, what's the point in what we're doing? If we're going to be here, um, you know, eight hours a day, we're spending more time with the people around us than we are uh, with our own families. There better be a pretty good reason for that. And then that forms the basis of who you are as a character and what you want to display. And I say it like that because I'm, you know, I've been on earth for a, a good number of decades and I've been able to work out what my why is. Most people, most people won't know what their why is. Um, and I definitely recommend, you know, Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, and uh, really digging deep into yourself to understand what is it, you know, why Why do you do the things that you do? Why have you chosen the path that you've chosen? Uh, and then building that why out and then building all of your content and your personal content around that why is, firstly, it's true to who you are. Uh, and secondly, it's really honest. And honesty, this is why AI, by the way, won't work on, on social media. Because ultimately, the things that really work on social media is when someone's being truly honest. And you can feel it in the way that it's written. And that's a weird thing to say because they're just words, but but it isn't. Everyone, I suspect everyone knows what I'm talking about. When you read something, you know when something's being written from the heart. Um, and so, you know, that whole process will allow you to do that and build, and build a personal brand around those wine parts of you. Yes, I'm, I'm more able to connect to some content than other, other content, and I'm more able to relate to it when it's coming from another human experience. So that's the reason that it feels like it's easy to, to kind of know um, if this is a real person or an AI. Um, I would like to welcome everyone again for joining uh, the our episode of today. Um, if you have any questions, if you are a startup, or if you're not, if you're just curious about personal branding, how to present yourself uh, digitally on social media, 
um, and how to go about that, you can uh, raise your hand at any point in time and we will put you up to ask um, and ask you questions. Um, yeah, so don't be shy. Uh, we are here to answer your questions. Um, and so uh, moving on, Aziz, um, what are the platforms that you think? So let's talk a bit technically here. Um, platforms, websites, uh, how do I start presenting myself? Um, digitally as a startup or a founder of a business or even just as a professional character? Sure. So let me, I think that the answer to that is really dependent on where you are in your career. And I think what we've got in the room, we've got um, Wat, who's towards the start of her career. We have yourself, who's sort of in the middle of their career. And uh, we have Amar, who is very senior in his career. So let's start with Amar and work backwards, right? So Amar already has a personal brand and everyone kind of in the, particularly in the telco space, um, and in the Middle East, everyone knows who Ammar is. They, they know what he delivers to the world, uh, what he delivers to entities that he works with. So how would Ammar go about continuing his personal brand? Well, he'd take like the, he'd continue to do the things that he's doing, but he'd augment it with things like um, guest appearances on podcasts. This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today. That's like a really good thing to be doing, you know, to be jumping to, you know, you can go on Fiverr and get like a, um, a personal assistant who will get you on podcasts if you've got a, a, an interesting background. And, you know, doing guest appearances on podcasts around the world or, you know, even on traditional news channels or uh, being a guest writer on blogs or being a guest writer in, in news publications, this is like the advanced level. This is the kind of stuff that Amara would now do um, alongside the things that he already does. So he already, for example, speaks at large events. He already um, hosts roundtables. He already produces his own content on on LinkedIn and, and other channels. So alongside those, he'd augment with like these higher end strategies. Then you have maybe someone like yourself, Waj, who is sort of in the in the middle of their career, and maybe you've just started to figure out your why, and maybe that's like now this is the time to really start to knuckle down on that a little bit and to work um, to to create content. Around and you'd use the traditional channels. But again, it's about segmenting which words you're showing on each channel. So on LinkedIn, you you may talk um you may talk about the 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 joys and challenges of of managing clients. That's like a day-to-day -day thing and why you spend so much of your energy doing it and why the the value and feeling that you get from the success of a client is worth all of the energy, the, all of the effort that you put into it. Um and you'd do that through um maybe videos, maybe you'd do that through uh, through long-form posts, and maybe you'd write blogs as well. And again, you could also um, you could also do uh, guest blogging. And then you have Wired. So Wired is sort of at the earliest um, stages of her career, and she's probably still figuring, figuring out her why. She's probably still figuring out why am I doing these things. And so much more of her content is going to be about that experience, the experience of figuring out, you know, why am I doing all of the things that I'm doing? Why am I spending so much time learning about threads? Why am I spending so much time at generating content for clients? What is the value that I'm bringing to the clients? And, and again, she in this case, you'd only choose one platform. You wouldn't necessarily spread the effort across multiple platforms. So it really depends, I think, where you are in your career as to which channels that you choose. Um, and the fit, I will say the more, um, I would say the more career mature you are, the easier it is to be able to explore other channels.
it's brilliant how you've laid out how different um, how different people in different stages of their careers can present themselves differently and focus on um, those aspects of their uh, their strength. Um, one thing that I've, I've noticed is that the easiest way to um, talk about yourself is to talk about what you know. And uh, you may think that what you know is so redundant or so um, common sense that you don't think that this is something that you should be talking about often uh, online. But then you realize that this could have value and the things that you know about it are actually of value. And so uh, on this regard, uh, how, how can someone build confidence in themselves to kind of start presenting just what they know even if they don't feel that they have the most impressive record uh, to show on LinkedIn or on on the platform that they chose to express themselves. So this is a very Sudanese problem, right? So uh, Sudanese people being particular don't particularly like to express their uh, talents. And, you know, Sudanese, for a lot of the Sudanese people I've met, and many of them in this room are, are some of the most talented people, people that I've met from around the world. But there is also, at the same time, the most humble people so there's definitely an issue around that within our culture. Um, I think that the easiest way to do it is to just do it and accept that you're wrong, accept that you're going to make mistakes. And frankly speaking, the lifetime of any content that you produce is 24 hours. So you're only ever wrong for 24 hours anyway, and you can evolve from that and you'll learn from that. I think that uh, being really specific helps though. So being really specific in your content, I say, you know, um, and it may be something really small, like um, I've been playing with um, with WhatsApp uh, updates. You know, the new like the channels um, uh, feature that they've, they've they've taken from Telegram, and you know, sharing content about how to set that up and what the potential value of that is is one way of doing that. We have Amna, who's our head of creative, who has taken to writing white papers. That's a bloody brilliant way, by the way, of like uh, evolving. Um, your personal brand is if you've got the time to write and design a white paper uh, and then distributing that white paper or as she does as she you now she's found different channels to distribute that white paper that really positions herself sets her up as a thought leader in her own space and I think that's like a really valuable way of doing it so the easiest way to start personal branding is to sit down with a piece of paper and say right what do I want to talk about except that you're not going to be right first time off if this is your first time you're not right first time off and once you've decided what you want to talk about, look at what other people are talking about. Through that process, you'll realize that you're actually significantly more intelligent than most people who are talking a lot about those topics. Uh, and then just be brave. Go ahead and do it. Um, work out how the algorithms work. Work out what uh, a pod is, for example. Join a LinkedIn pod or an Instagram pod or whatever it is. Get get your content promoted through those pods. and um, and 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 just do it. And then you'll get feedback and you'll get feedback in various forms that like for me, the worst form of feedback is no engagement. So that's like basically essentially saying neither the algorithm nor the people liked your content. Um, and the best form of feedback is really high engagement. Now, really high engagement can often be really high negative engagement. And then you have to make a judgment call. Is that uh, a good thing or a bad thing? Negative engagement isn't always a bad thing. Negative engagement could just mean that you've started a debate. You've got to be, you've got to be careful not to lose your temper. You've got to be careful to recognize it for what it is, which is just uh, a debate and uh, a difference of opinion. But that can really help build your profile too. 
interesting and very, very helpful for me as a Sudanese person, of course. Um, welcome everyone again. Uh, we have some newcomers. Uh, thank you for joining. We are talking about leveraging personal branding to build your startup. If you have any questions or comments or you just like to pitch in during this podcast, uh, please raise your hand and we will be more than happy to have you uh, 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 speak uh, and ask you questions or listen to your comments and feedback. Um, so tell me, Aziz, what are what does a personal brand, a successful personal brand look like? Before you ask me that, I have another question. Who is the founder of eBay? I honestly don't know. And what's embarrassing about that is that I interviewed in, at eBay once and I was offered a job that I didn't accept. But I honestly don't know who the founder of eBay is. Do you? I didn't until today, but it seems like Rodwan knows the answer to that. So, Redwan, do you know who is the founder of eBay? Well, uh, some guy from Europe, right? <laughs> from Russia, East uh, something, something. The name is Casey. Paul something. It does start with a P, but the specific name is not the reason I, uh, um, like, I'm glad that you know, like, you have an idea of who he is. But I'm going to ask you another question, and I'm sure that Radwan and Aziz will both know the answer of who is the founder of Amazon. Bezos. Yeah, the muscle man Jeff Bezos. <laughs> okay, muscle man. <laughs> and so those two people, I mean, I know eBay as, as a platform, and I know Amazon, but Amazon is the most popular. People trust it. People like it. But I also know Jeff Jeff Paces so well. I know a lot about him. He's like, everywhere I go, there is something about, uh, some news about him. And so this kind of got me to think that is this what a personal branding looks like? And is this why Amazon is more popular than eBay? No, it's not why Amazon's more popular than eBay, because at one point eBay was significantly more popular than Amazon. Um, but is Jeff Bezos more successful than the founders of eBay? Oh, definitely. Yes, he is. If not the richest, the second richest man in the world. Well, you know, on paper, I'm sure there are other people who are uh, richer. And and part of that is not just because of what Amazon has done, but it's also uh, around the uh, the aura and ethos that, that Jeff Bezos has created around himself um, that has allowed him to do other things like space exploration um and you know getting into paper with riders and, and the like so i think that there's a lot of um a, a lot of elements there i do have it for you yeah if you don't mind i'm sorry uh, i missed that Go ahead. so uh since it's leveraging personal branding to build your startup um how can I leverage my personal branding and I don't have a product to sell? And and usually when we talk about branding and marketing, I guess the, the maybe it could be a wrong notion, but the notion is you always or your mind runs towards selling a product. Is marketing and branding stops at selling an, uh, a product or marketing a product or could it be something else? Yeah, as always, an awesome question. You are the product. 
in personal branding, you're the product. So essentially what you're doing is you're selling yourself and you're doing it in a tacit way, not an, not an, um, an overt way. You're doing it in a much more covert way. So if I was selling to Sally water, I would say, you know, pure tap water filtered uh, tap water that it, that's a cheap price. And that's like me directly selling uh, a specific product. But when you're selling um, yourself or when you're branding yourself, what you're really trying to do is not sell your features, but demonstrate your features. And you demonstrate that through thought leadership, having opinions on topics, having opinions on things that are happening uh, around the world or in your industry, uh, writing about those opinions and, and structuring arguments based around those opinions. So yeah, in, in the in the personal branding space, you're the product. And if you consider yourself a product, it's actually a lot easier. Like that paradigm is an easier paradigm to work with because then you can objectively look at yourself and say, okay, as a product, what, um, what, what are the, the features that I have above and beyond other products? other people in my space and how can I leverage those features to build my own personal brand so rather than let's say pesos we have Wozniak and it's and of course Steve Jobs would Apple have been what it is today if it wasn't for Steve Jobs no Apple would not have been what it is today if it wasn't for Steve Jobs but Apple would not have been what it is today if it wasn't for Wozniak either and I think that that's a good like partnership, a, a good example of partnership, because there are many founders in the world who are great at selling themselves and not great at building products. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, we spoke last time about hiring the people that fill your gaps. And I think that that's where uh, Woz and, and uh, Jobs sort of worked it out perfectly because they were able to complement each other really well. And, and let's not forget, you know, Apple was uh, three, three months away from bankruptcy uh, at one point and so it, it wasn't an easy ride for them um but 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 what's important is that the two people sort of complemented each other and you know steve was there never they never well was never tried to build his personal brand unlike steve jobs but there is i would say in the tech world there's a greater affinity for wasniak than there is for jobs like as marketers we love jobs right but in the tech world we love Woz too, because what he did, what he is now is like this incredible, like, I kind of heard this great story. Um, this comedian who's a friend with uh, Wozniak said uh, he wanted to go and buy the latest iPod. And Woz said to him, okay, well, I'll go with you to the Apple store. Um, uh, you can use my Apple discount. You can use my employee discount. And he went into the store and they chose the iPad and they went to the, to the, to the sales lady. Uh, the comedian goes, okay, so like, uh, I want to use his um, his staff discount. And she looked him up and down uh, and she said, so you work at Apple? And he goes, yeah, well, I did. Uh, here's my uh, Apple ID. If you look closely, it says employee number one. And that's like typical was. He's so unique in that. He's so unique in the, like, um, in his personality. And that just comes out. It's so true to himself. And I think that's really important as well in, in personal branding, just being true to yourself um when whenever you're whenever you're sort of expressing yourself out in public thank you that's hilarious um what makes a personal brand successful at least how does that look like and can you think of an example whether it's a global example or from sudan that has 
something similar to a successful personal brand and that we can look at and say, okay, yeah, the, I, I get it. I get why this is an example of that. Yeah. Like, um, I think the best examples of personal brand, personal branding done well are, are when the, the, when there's no surprise when you meet the real person, right? So when the personal brand or the, the public persona and the private persona are essentially one and the same thing, when what you preach is actually what you do. And when those two things are perfectly aligned, then you've really sort of successfully achieved what, what personal branding is. You've been able to uh, express who you are. And I think that um, it's a lot easier to point out examples of people who have failed in that. Uh, like, so one of one of the people that's really obvious is, you know, someone we all probably know on this call, Himiti, right? So Himiti, let's like, let's just look objectively without any, we're going to try and be like objective and emotionless and just analyze Himiti as a personal brand over the last, let's say, four to five years. Um, and as a personal brand five years ago, he essentially didn't um, didn't exist, you know, this is pre-Thora, he didn't exist, he was just this guy, this warlord essentially, uh, with a history in Darfur that was unpleasant, extremely rich because of uh, gold, and his personal brand was created by the rumours around him, and that, that, by the way, is what happens if you're a public persona, and you don't deliberately deliver, uh, create a personal brand, the public will create a personal brand for you, they'll just do it with rumours and hearsay, and then he started working with a company, I don't know what the company is specifically, but they very obviously started to work on his personal brand. And it changed a lot of him personally as well. Even how he dressed, right? And this is a really important point. It's such a small thing, but a really obvious thing that I would notice as a marketer. He started dressing differently. And it was obvious that he was being coached on how to dress and um, and how to present himself. Uh, and he was essentially dressing and, and acting like a statesman. And the content that was being produced in his name, when I say being produced in his name, I don't know for sure that he wasn't that he wasn't producing the content himself. Although, you know, I would bet my house that he wasn't producing the content himself. Um, he was not. And so, you know, the content he was producing was very obviously positioning him as a statesman. That was the key. He was being positioned as a statesman. And um, even after, like, the horrific events of Prabhupada uh, Tassam, you know, um, that process continued. And one of the things that I, th I always find interesting is that people, uh, particularly, like, people I meet people who are Sudanese or, or live in Sudan, we look at that content and we're so um, skeptical and we're so, like, critical of it. And the reason why is because we know that that isn't the real person. We actually know that. But then again, that content isn't for us. That content is being produced for a totally different audience. And that audience isn't even Sudanese. If you're trying to position yourself as a statesman, then by definition, you're trying to position yourself as an effective leader to other leaders on the world stage or to other government entities on the world stage. And so if you look at his content in English or in Arabic, what you'll find is the content of someone who's trying to be positioned as an effective leader on the world stage. And before this war, this will be a controversial statement, and you know, hopefully, don't get um, ADL for this. Before the war started, my belief is that whoever's managing his personal brand were doing a fantastic job, to the extent that if they'd have continued that for two, maybe three more years, 
and we had gone to elections um, as was planned, I would I'd argue that he had a good chance of winning elections like in a couple of years' time until the war started. Until he started to believe, we, we say this like in the office by a lot, don't believe your own bullshit. Until he started believing his own hype. Um, and then, you know, he really thought he was a statesman. Uh, and then the war started. And the reality is that when your personal brand is so diametrically opposed to what you do on the ground, um, it just creates a, a terrible experience for everybody. It, 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 you know, they're so whoever it is is so invested in Hemity now that they can't stop. They can't stop writing this content and trying to build this persona around him. But the reality is that if if he was managing himself, he would just stop talking. He'd stop talking online, and then he'd focus on um, you know uh, solving the issues that have been created. Because you cannot, on the one hand, be the general of an army that is known uh, and has like scores, hundreds, thousands of documented cases of uh, rape and theft and war crimes, you cannot be the general of that army and at the same time um, try to position yourself as a statesman. And I can see that, I can see the model that we're using, that we're using the model of um, Paul, I forget his name, in Rwanda, who was a rebel leader. He, he, was a, he was essentially a warlord, you know, very similar, very similar background, and then very successfully took over Rwanda um, after, you know, um, after years of, of, of anguish in that country and economically turned Rwanda around. And that as a model could have been successful until the 15th of April. And, um, and at that point, you know, it, it becomes a bit like it's a moot point to, to try and position yourself as a statesman because nobody's, nobody's going to ever see you as a statesman, especially when, um, the content you do personally is just so, on putting out. So I think, I think here, here's the question that begs itself. Um, when, when you compare Rwanda's uh, current leader, uh, who used to be, as you said, uh, a warlord, my concern is from a branding point of view, could that shift? Could that change? Because the guy in Rwanda is an educated warlord compared to Hemeti, who could not conceptualize or even understand the idea that he could, for example, shift and truly and true wear a new shirt. Maybe his lack of education, decorum, his ability to, to orate in the right way compared to the guy in Rwanda. Could you draw similarities uh, between that? Well, I think that's a really interesting question, right? Because let's, let's play out scenarios for a second. If there was a scenario where, God forbid, the RSF won the war and Hemiti was the new de facto leader of Sudan. Could personal branding, in the, in the method that he has um, adopted, uh, legitimize his leadership on the world stage? The answer is, unfortunately, yes. We know that because we have seen it time and time again. However, would the Sudanese people be behind him? Absolutely not. There is no way. Now, they may not speak out out of fear, but nonetheless, they wouldn't be behind it. Now, let's take in a different scenario. What if there was some sort of truce, some sort of peace agreement where he got to keep his um, his uh, his army, essentially, and there was some sort of power-sharing agreement? Well, that, for me, is the worst-case scenario because not only 
um, is he still in a position of power. He now has legitimacy, which is created by the rest of the institutions within Sudan, uh, particularly the army, and therefore he has time to try and rebuild his reputation. Like, we have to remember that um, uh, uh, up until, uh, well, basically since day one, Fadl al-Tassam was, was blamed on so many other people other than the RSF. We all knew who, we were there, we knew who, we knew who, 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 who did that. But if you say something often enough for long enough, people will start to believe the opposite. So when people say, and I hear this a lot, like when people say, you know, um, uh, no to war, like or stop the war. Well, what you're saying, when there's no obvious winner in a war, what you're really saying is these two parties need to sit down and negotiate a settlement. Well, let's just play that scenario through. They sit down, they negotiate a settlement. No one is winning this war right now. Therefore, there's essentially a power-sharing agreement that comes into place. Therefore, you've legitimized the warlord. Therefore, he has an opportunity to rebuild his personal brand. And he could do that very easily, by the way. He could very easily, in that scenario, he could very easily um, make multiple addresses, accepting the things that had happened, saying that this all happened because, of, you know, the rapes happened because of the troops that we brought in from Niger or from Chad. And um, look, I hold my hands up that we didn't vet them properly. He could do that. There are ways that he could legitimize himself in that scenario. And that is the worst possible outcome. So, um, yes, there is a way that he could re-legitimize himself, but only in a scenario where he is in a power-sharing position, which is why this whole concept of Lal um, al-Harb doesn't make any logical sense from a geopolitical perspective. It's probably the most dangerous outcome of all. Does that answer your question? It does, and, and, and of course. Now, somehow somebody must have been paid so much money to put a new paint on the rapid support or as we call them Adamasaria in comparison to the National Sudanese Army. From a branding point of view, did they win any scores with the Sudanese nationals? Uh did they show their rapid support, whatever they needed to be, in comparison to the Sudanese army? Did that win them any scores did that increase their their value in the eyes of uh, the Sudanese citizens and maybe perhaps even the world vis-a-vis the the current situation where we are where we are at today did that increase did the the um the rebranding and personal branding if you like of the RSF and Himiti improve the perception of them to the Sudanese people in the international community well the answer lies in the results because we me included lived in Khartoum with tens of thousands of RSF living in Kavori which is where I live and we didn't bat an eyelid we didn't for a moment stop and say hold on this isn't right we have we have rapists and murderers living amongst us we didn't even consider um that this was a problem in fact I'll tell you a story me and my friend one night were going to find a, um, a, 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 a five-a-side football pitch because ours as was fully booked. And we knew there was one in Kapuri inside a masjid. So um, we went there, and it turns out that that whole area had become a, a camp 
for the RSF. And when we walked in, the RSF were like, wait, who are you guys? And they were, initially, they were really aggressive. And then you could see they were fighting against it because they'd been told to have people come in, treat them in this way, treat them in this way. And they got us chairs and they brought us water and they were fighting this urge, this like instinctive urge to, you know, be aggressive towards us. Um, and so, you know, from that experience, we sat there and said, okay, well, at least they're trying. You know, that was our de facto response. At least they're trying. Um, in hindsight, of course, um, you know, we allowed them to be in cover without, without raising any red flags ourselves. Lots of people did, by the way. Lots of people did raise red flags themselves. But in the end, tens of thousands of um, the same people who were on murdering and slaughtering sprees in Darfur were in Khartoum on the 14th of April. Uh, and so, you know, I think without the efforts that they had gone to to reposition themselves, that just wouldn't have been viable. Um, when it comes to the international community, absolutely. And they're still doing it, by the way, when it comes to the international community. So you'll regularly see posts from the RSF talking about how they're working with humanitarian um, entities, how they're creating their own humanitarian entities. And yet, you know, we all know what's actually happening on the ground. Conversely, the um, Sudanese army uh, essentially haven't. They essentially haven't um, put any effort into into rebranding themselves. And that, I believe that to be like a, um, uh, a hangover from the previous regime, who were very sort of preferred secrecy over over talking um, publicly and didn't care about their international position. They really did not care about how they were viewed by the international community as long as they were left alone. And that kind of has spilled over, I feel, feel into the army. And frankly speaking, without any branding effort, the army has still is still widely perceived as a much stronger entity um, within the Sudanese people than... Um, than, than the RSF. However, on the international uh, and the international level, from a geopolitical perspective, the Sudanese army is seen as weak and ineffective. Um, the question is, well, what would have happened if they would have taken the same approach that the RSF did in terms of branding themselves and rebranding themselves? We know, by the way, that the Sudanese army is still loved because, you know, the leader, Buhari, he has essentially gone on a victory tour of Sudan and then, you know, Egypt Saudi, uh, Egypt, and, and Qatar as well now. And he's essentially on a victory tour, unchallenged. He's essentially going to these cities one by one, sitting there without a weapon, saying, here I am, coming at me. You can't, you know, you can't touch me. You may think that you, as the RSF, have um, cornered uh, or put us in a corner, but you haven't, and here I am. And that small action has much, much bigger consequences. So, you know, I feel like... Um, it's a really big question that you've asked, and I'm trying to answer it as succinctly as possible. But, uh, but the RSF's branding effort has definitely had an impact, a uh, very visible impact on an international geopolitical level, um, and has also had an impact, or at least you know, before the 15th of April, also had had an impact uh, for other Sudanese people living in Sudan. If it hadn't have had that impact, I think we would have had a much stronger view around their mere existence in, in, in Khartoum. And obviously, their alignments with political entities sort of helped that. That is a podcast of its own, what I just heard. It's, 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 a, it's a very dense 
subject that you've been speaking about now, Aziz, and thank you, Rodwan, for bringing this up. Um, this 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 personal branding thing. I did not think that this this is how we're gonna end the podcast with this topic, and um, and yeah, I would love to hear from Rodwan on everything that Aziz just said. Um, you went you went deep there, Aziz, and I really want to know uh, Rodwan's feedback on that. Are you asking me to say something? Is that what you said? What? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you have any um, views or feedback uh, from what Aziz just uh, was discussing about the uh, RSF slash the only comparison. Yeah. Of course, I, I totally uh, agree with Aziz. I think there was an attempt to completely remap the entire Sudanese uh, armed forces and the rapid support was it. And of course, that might um, get me to elude into um, other conspiracies, but I'm, this is not the place for it. However, I always believe, just like Aziz did with his company, from Sudan Digital into Kush Digital, that allowed him not only to move physically, but also to change a mindset. And I think oftentimes we we misrepresent, or at least we misunderstand that branding is not necessarily an item in of itself, a logo, or perhaps a name of a company. Branding is the service that you provide. So right now you can call Aziz's company any name other than Kush or Sudan Digital, but Aziz will always step to the plate and will deliver barman services. I think that's the branding. The ability to be unique, to be on point, to be current, to be relevant, that makes your branding very unique. And I'm not sure if Aziz agrees with this or not, but this is my understanding to branding compared to marketing. So oftentimes, anytime there is a startup, I think Aziz earlier alluded to Dr. Ammar, and then he alluded to me. Everywhere I appear, I speak in the same way, very unfortunately, professorial-like, uh, maybe monotonous. Ammar might be a little bit more, I don't know, interesting. Ammar might have um, a lingo that is completely relevant to certain people, especially his age, since he and Aziz are much younger than I am. So that's their branding. And I'm not sure if Aziz agrees to that or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I completely agree. Like, you know, the name is just a name. It's what you actually are that matters. So in the end, what you are is the thing that, that, that rises to the front. So I think that, um, I think that you're hundred percent right. And I don't know how we've gone from personal branding to Jeff Bezos, uh, ADL, the RSF and the Sudanese army all in an hour, but that, uh, I blame Wedge. I blame Wedge. I blame Wedge too, um, as per usual. Uh, if anyone has any um, topic suggestions for next week's episode, we're here every Thursday at the same time, 8 p.m. Uh, Egypt time, which is GMT plus three, uh, and you'll always find the um, the the link to the next uh, podcast on uh, on my profile. And uh, if you missed any part of this, don't worry. Uh, in a couple of hours' time, this will be available online uh, wherever you listen to podcasts just search for uh, coffee with kush um, and you can listen to this and any of the other uh, podcasts that we've done on various topics 
Uh, we'll be here again uh, in a week's time. Thank you, everyone, for uh, attending. Thank you, Radwan. Thank you, Amar, Yusuf, Hamd Ali, everyone uh, who's been here. And, of course, thank you to uh, our very special Wahaj for hosting once again. Have a wonderful weekend. This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today.